Welcome to East Asia Now, a podcast that brings you informed perspectives on current issues related to East Asia. Hello, listeners, and welcome to the East Asia Now podcast. My name is David Fields, and I'm the Associate Director of the Center for East Asian Studies at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. I'm joined today by Tokyo-based writer and translator Matt Alt, a UW-Madison alum. Matt has lived in Japan since 2003, where he works as a localizer, helping produce English-language versions of popular Japanese video games, comic books, and other forms of entertainment. He was the co-host of the popular NHK World Television show, Japanology Plus, from 2015 to 2020, and his essays and cultural commentary regularly appear in a variety of media outlets, including The New Yorker website, BBC Culture, CNN Go, The Economist, 1843, Wired, The Independent, The Japanese Times, or The Japan Times, and Newsweek Japan. He is also the author of Peer Invention, How Japan Made the Modern World, published in 2021 by Crown, which I have just finished reading or nearly finished reading and is absolutely spectacular. Matt, welcome back to Madison. Thank you. Thank you. It is an honor and and such a blast to be back on campus after all these years. It's over 20 years away from me. Okay. Wow. Wow. (laughs) All right, Matt, we like to start this podcast by uh, just trying to get the origin story of the guests that are coming on. So we like to ask, you know, why Japan? And why a writer? You know, why did right. you choose what to study? And then why did you choose to channel your, your research right. and your activity in this particular direction? Origin stories. This is where I say I was bitten by a Japanese radioactive spider or something. <laughs> but actually, that's, that's kind of true. I, even as a, a little kid, uh, growing up in the, in the late 70s and early 80s, I was really, really uh, obsessed, to, 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 not to put uh, too fine a, a line on it, with Japanese pop culture. Uh, comic books, toys mainly. There were a lot of Japanese toys coming into the marketplace, uh, cartoons, all sorts of products. And they were so different from the things that American makers were making. You could just tell this illustration style was different, the philosophy was different. And so even as a little kid, uh, I noticed that. And it, it really made me aware that somewhere out there really far away was this nation of people who loved like giant robots and monsters <laughs> as much as I did. And, and honestly, that's it. I, that is what drove me to start studying Japanese. It wasn't out of any kind of you know, academic, you know, I must learn about these people. It was like, I just wanted to check out this, what I thought was a really you know, kind of cool place. All right. Yeah. And, and then how did you get from there to writing and you know, writing for The New Yorker, publishing a wonderful book? You know, how did you channel those energies into writing? Well, you know, I I was really lucky in that my high school in suburban Maryland was one of the first to have a Japanese program. So I got a leg up on studying Japanese there. And then I came to the UW uh, in in large part because the UW has such a strong Japanese language program and East Asian studies program in general. So that was another huge boost to me to get that, you know, academic background and and, and learn Japanese in, in, in such a structured way. 
But, you know, after school, after I graduated, I kicked around a lot. It wasn't really easy to, to, to find my path. And I think that's probably true for a lot of people. But I always knew that I wanted to work uh, in, a, in a creative field involving Japan in some way. And, and through, you know, kind of hopscotching around, you know, I would do temp jobs. And I landed a job at the, the U.S. government, the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office. That's where I learned my translation shops. Okay. And from there, it was just kind of, you know, it's all in hindsight, right? It's all like, wow, this is how it happened. But when it was happening, yeah. you just had no idea, how you, no idea where you were going. Yeah, and, and I think I can tell by reading the book that th- this, uh, your origin in the U.S. Patent and Trade Office kind of comes out because there's a, such a rich, detailed history of so many of the products yes. in this book. Um, and and it's, it's written for an eye for detail, which I, I'm a details kind of person. I really appreciate getting the backstory on some of these oh, projects. Thanks. It's just fascinating. Well, you know, it's, this book emerged from my desire to try to quantify something that we all feel, mm-hmm. which is that Japan has this sort of outsized cultural gravity, yeah. not just on us East Asian studies people, but on, you know, the, really on the planet as a whole. Yeah. And we all kind of instinctively know this, but there wasn't anything out there that really kind of explained it. And yeah. I did a lot of reading in the, in the lead up to, to writing the proposal for this book and didn't really find anything satisfactory. And that's when I hit on the idea of using products as a lens. Because, you know, when you say Japan or U.S.-Japan relations, right, well, most people are never going to go to Japan. You know, most people probably might not even meet a Japanese person. But almost every single person on the planet has something made in Japan in their homes. And so those products are in a really, a very real way, sort of like little ambassadors of Japanese culture. They're the kind of faces of Japan abroad. And so it made a lot of sense to use them to interrogate that that kind of relationship. Yeah, and and you do that so well in your book. And... You use this term that I really like because I feel like it encompasses so many things that I had not thought of before as one category, and that is fantasy delivery devices. This is a term that comes up quite a bit. Can you describe what you mean by fantasy delivery devices? And then maybe can you explain, you know, one of your favorites that appears in this book? Well, you know... Again, I really struggled with how to categorize the products that I was going to use to uh, describe and define this relationship between the countries. And, you know, you can't just be like, oh, cool stuff from Japan, you know? (laughs) And it is cool stuff from Japan. This is the problem, right? But why is it cool stuff from Japan? And, you know, why do certain products have a a sort of uh, ability to influence us that others don't? So I came up with the idea of fantasy delivery devices because, to me, the things that we love about Japan as modern-day consumers of things Japanese are things that sort of nourish our imaginations. They nourish our fantasies. That, that's really key to them, whether it's something like a comic book, a manga, whether it's, uh, you know, a, a, an electronic gadget that does something interesting, or whether it's somebody like Marie Kondo who is delivering a, a fantasy of her own of a kind of uncluttered, uh, sim- simple, uh, more simplified life. You know, these, these products from Japan kind of teach us new ways of looking at the world and new ways of doing things. So I came up with the idea of fantasy delivery devices to differentiate the products that I used in the book from just hits. Yeah. Right? Because there's tons of hits out there, right? You know, like a, a pet rock or something is a big, that's not Japanese, but you know, that, that's a fad. Yeah. I wasn't really so interested in fads. I wanted to talk about products that had a profound impact on the way that we saw the world. So when I came up with the term fantasy delivery device, I also came up with a sort of metric for defining what is a fantasy delivery device. 
And that metric is called the three ins. To be considered a fantasy delivery device, a product has to be, first of all, uh, inessential. Mm-hmm. We purchased it because we wanted it, not because we needed it. That's really key because, you know, getting something because you want it, there, there's a much different, you know, kind of calculus between that and something that you, you buy because you, you know, reluctantly have to. Yeah. It had to be inescapable. That's the second in, uh, meaning it was everywhere. You know, it, it was, so it had to be a hit. It couldn't be some kind of minor thing that just flared up in one place and went away because that wouldn't lead to the third one, which is influential. Yeah. The products, uh, fan- to be considered a fantasy delivery device, a product had to either change the way that we thought about our own lives, changed our worldview, or changed our image of Japan. Mm-hmm. And generally, most times, both at the same time. So that's where I came up with that metric. And it explains why, for instance, the Nintendo Entertainment System is considered a fantasy delivery device. But a video deck is not. Yeah. A video deck was, is inessential. And, and they were everywhere, especially in the 80s. Videotape, you know, kids. We used to have to watch <laughs> things on videotape. Uh, but the, the big difference is, you know, when you used a VCR in the United States, you were using it to consume Hollywood movies yeah. or taping movies off TV. So it didn't really change your opinion about Japan, let alone the world. Whereas the Nintendo Entertainment System, well, when you bought that, particularly in the 80s when it first came out, you were compelled to purchase content made in Japan. And from that content, we learned all sorts of new ways of looking at the world. So that's really in a nutshell, in a very long nutshell, (laughs) what what a fantasy delivery device is and why it's different from your uh, kind of garden variety hit product. Definitely, definitely. I'm just curious too, I mean, so, so the Nintendo Entertainment System, the karaoke machine, these are some of the fantasy delivery devices that, that are in your book that you detail so well. I, I'm wondering, was there any fantasy delivery device that didn't make it into your book? Well, you know, one of the things I really wanted to put into the book but just didn't have time to do was to, a little bit more of a focus on Japanese pop music. Uh-huh. Right now, K-pop from Korea yeah. gets a lot of attention, and rightfully so, because, I mean, they're, they're, they're putting on a lot of amazing stuff. Like, you know, the, the fan bases of groups like BTS are there's nothing to laugh at. I mean, right. this, is, this is huge global phenomenon. But I think that the ways in which K-pop is consumed in the West is actually much more evocative of the way Japanese consumed their own idol groups in the 90s mm. than it is really a new trend. Okay. It's actually much more, uh, it seems like a new trend because we've never really had foreign music take off in the West uh, in, or in America, certainly, in the way that we've seen with, yes. with K-pop. But, you know, there was a, a succession of Japanese pop hits in the 60s, 70s, and 80s that really had exerted a pretty profound influence on American pop yes. music as well, like going back to the Sukiyaki song of the 60s, mm-hmm. which was the first foreign language song uh, to top the charts in the States by a singer named Q Sakamoto. Okay. And then in the early 80s, uh, another a very pioneering band uh, called YMO, the Yellow Magic Orchestra, uh, Yuichi Sakamoto, who were kind of proto-EDM, uh, proto-electronica. Yeah. And were getting covered by everybody ranging from Eric Clapton to Michael Jackson and all sorts of people. And that influence is really interesting, but it kind of flared out. Sure a little bit in the 90s for reasons we might get into okay. uh, uh, if we talk about karaoke and developments there. Yeah. But uh, that's a really interesting sort of thing I wanted to talk about in the yeah. book, but just didn't have room. And, and one of the things I want to highlight of this book um, is, as a historian, I really appreciate how you 
you trace this story really all the way back to 1945. And I feel like people who are knowledgeable, you know, broadly knowledgeable about U.S.-Japan relations, we think about, you know, the 80s, the 1980s, and the 1990s as the, the heyday of, of Japanese growth and global influence. But I love the way you trace that story back and, and kind of give us the backstory on all of those developments. Well, I think it's just really telling that in the first months after World War II, the first product of any kind to go on sale in the Japanese marketplace was a toy. Yeah. It wasn't an essential. It was an inessential. Yeah. And Japan was ruined at the time. The cities were fallen. So it's amazing not only that somebody had the idea to make this, but that so many people craved it. It just goes to show you what they knew they'd been missing during those long years of war. Yeah, and, and it also, in my mind, kind of highlights the deficiencies of a lot of uh, developmental thinking yeah. <laughs> that's being done in the United States and other places during these periods as, you know, how do societies develop and they recover? You know, they have to focus on producing X or producing Y. And toys was not one of the things that they were recommending. No, no. I mean, it, it's easy to underestimate toys and play things. Yeah. But, you know, when the human mind plays, you know, when it relaxes, that's when really interesting things start to happen. Yeah. And so, you know, personally, speaking personally, you know, my encounters with Japanese toys as a kid were profoundly transformative. Yeah. And actually, they were driven by Transformers. Yeah. So perhaps this is, <laughs> this is you know, very, uh, you know, on point here. But uh, it's it's... Even from the very earliest moments of contact between Western observers and Japan, even going back to like the Victorian era of the 19th century, uh, Westerners have always been shocked by the amount of effort the Japanese put into creating playthings of all, mm -hmm. of all kinds. And I think that you know, sense of play is a big thing about what differentiates Japanese design and, and Japanese products from those of other nations. Yeah. So I, I kind of did something unfair and asked you about a, maybe a fantasy delivery device that was not in the book. Yes. Can you tell us about one that is in the book? Maybe one that you particularly enjoyed writing about or learning about or one that resonated with you? Well, you know, it's really interesting. I was a, I'm a kid of, of, the, of the 80s and, you know, the 90s, so I was expecting to, to have the most fun writing the chapters about, like, anime and, and, and manga and, like, you know, digital gadgets like, you know, Tamagotchi or the Game Boy, and I did. Those are really fun to write about, but absolutely the most interesting and fun exploration I did was tracking down the the creator of the first karaoke machine. Okay. And he's still alive. He's like 97 years old now. Um, a little frail, but like sharp as a tack. And getting to meet this guy was, I, I don't know, you felt like you, you, you reached the sage on the mountaintop. Like karaoke began here, <laughs> you know? And he's just, he's just, I like to sing. What can I tell you, you know? And it was really interesting. And I saw this repeated over and over again. You'd meet these, these creators of these seminal products and you'd say, oh, what, what, was, what was going on? What were you thinking? They're like, I don't know. It just seemed like the right thing to do at the time. Yeah. And uh, I, that's really telling, you know? I think it's tough to set out to create something that changes the world. <laughs> a lot of times you change the world without realizing it. Sure, sure. No, it's a, it's a remarkable, remarkable story, especially that the karaoke machine was invented by several different people. Yes almost simultaneously yes. and seemingly with no contact between yeah, them. Yeah, five times. Karaoke was independently invented five times between the years of like 1967 and 1971. Yes. And it just goes to show you there was something in the air in Japan and actually in the book. So I was like, well, what? And it turns out uh, everybody kind of agreed on this. It's salaryman yeah. culture, Japanese salarymen, Japanese businessmen. Uh, they needed to get together after hours to socialize. They needed to entertain their clients. And this was a big part of business in Japan in the post-war period, in what's known as the Showa era uh, of the high growth 
period. I, you know, socializing with was no joke after work. You really had to do it. And tools like karaoke emerged to kind of automate certain processes in there. Like up until the karaoke machine came out, you had to kind of hail a wandering minstrel, <laughs> like a mariachi type guy, and have him strum on his guitar so you could sing. So automating this this process was actually, I don't think anybody said, hmm, we need to automate this. But there was a need for it that nobody realized existed. Yeah. And America didn't have that. You know, we're in the Mad Men era. You get three martini lunch, you're back at home sleeping it off by the evening. We didn't need karaoke. Yeah, yeah. Japan needed karaoke. And yeah. it turns out the rest of the world did too, but just a couple <laughs> decades later. We just didn't know it. Right. And, and that's really, as, as a historian and as someone who studies U.S. East Asian relations, really resonated with me most about this book is a key argument of this book, as I understand it, as I read it, is that Japan seems to be ahead of the curve in some sense. That, you know, things that are being done in Japan, you know, like karaoke, like video games, like manga, give it a few years time and it's being done in the United States as well. And, and you describe the book as how a wild bunch of Japanese creatives shaped modern life, forging new tools for navigating the weirdness of late-stage capitalist society. I, I love that turn of phrase. So I want to ask you. <laughs> it, sounds, it sounds like such an overstatement, but it's not. No, no. I, 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 my advisor used to say if something's worth stating, it's worth a hearty overstatement. And, and I firmly believe that, although I don't believe that that is the case um, with your book. But so I wanted to ask you, what are the Japanese doing right now? What are you seeing in Japan right now? that you think we might all be doing in a few years. Well, time. actually, this is the, the they're, they're dealing with apocalypse. You know, they're doing what we're all doing right now. They're dealing with COVID. It's, I think, partially because of COVID-19, we have all caught up. Mm. Now, to, to, to understand what that means, you have to kind of go back to what I was talking about in the, in, the introduction, in, in the introduction to my book, which is back when I was growing up in the 80s, it was uh, understood, quote unquote, that Japan was in some sense in the future that we would all be living in these Blade Runner-like metropolises with flying cars and, like, you know, with the Japanese bosses pushing us around like Marty McFly in Back to the Future 3 or, you know, all, you couldn't even escape in entertainment back then. And, but it, it turns out, as I was writing my book and I, I had this realization, Japan did get to the future ahead of us, but it wasn't the future in the sense of, of, you know, driving around in giant robots or something like that. They got to the future ahead of us demographically, yeah. economically, and politically. Demographically, in that Japan, as it became a rich society, it, it also became a, 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 a less fertile society. They started to, to have fewer children. Uh, uh, economically, in the sense that in 1990, the Japan experienced an, ep an epic uh, crash of its real estate and stock markets that are uh, hauntingly evocative of what happened after the Lehman shock of 2008. And politically in that, the politicians had absolutely no ability to control any of this flailing around. Between 1990 and, and 2010, I think there were 14 prime ministers coming and going. You'd be, if you're not a Japanese poli-sci major, you'd be hard-pressed to name most of these guys. Um, so Japan was going through this sort of unprecedented period of uh, post-industrial, uh, late capitalist chaos ahead of the West. And so the tools that Japan developed for itself and the tools that Japanese creators created for themselves turned out to be ones that we ourselves would need a little bit down the line. And this is why when they arrived in our country, things like the Walkman or like the Tamagotchi or the Game Boy or uh, Two Channel, which turned into 4chan, the anonymous image board, they seemed like they came out of outer space. 
uh, and they did in a certain sense. The outer space that we were all rapidly moving toward in our own globalized, you know, uh, post-industrial, soon-to-be economically apocalyptic yeah. economy. Yeah. So, you know, in a very real sense, we're all Japanese now. You know, we've all started to resemble the Japanese. We're having less kids. You know, I don't think I have to, you know, go into detail about the political chaos that we've been experiencing. Yeah. And, you know, and, and uh, uh, socially, you know, you see a lot of the same trends that have been happening in Japan. You know, like otaku, like hyper-obsessive consumers of pop culture. Hikikomori, who don't want to go out at all. People who don't want to start families uh, because they feel too precarious. Yeah. We used to, we, meaning the American mass media in particular, and, and Western, British too, used to make fun of Japanese for this stuff. Oh, sexless Japanese, yeah. aren't they weird? <laughs> and the joke's on us. Like, all of these things started happening in the West just, just about 10 to 15 years after they did in Japan. Yeah. So, uh, you, I, this is a roundabout way of answering your question. We've synchronized now. Okay. And But because of that, the future is no longer going to be made in Japan. Yeah. What you're going to see is the future made everywhere else with sensibilities borrowed from Japan. Sure. And you're already seeing this in so many uh, ways that we can get into later. Yeah, and, and your mention of, of 2chan and 4chan, and I, I think it's such important because I don't want anyone to come away from this conversation thinking that this, this book is just a story of a few, you know, cute niche entertainment products. I mean, you're, you're tracing not just products, but really political developments and societal changes that happened in Japan before the United States and that we're dealing with here now, which I feel like is one of the real, one of the real powerful aspects of this book and why it should be read by more people than who are just interested in the history of Japanese products. You know, this is not a, a J-pop book. This is a, a serious societal investigation of Japanese and American society. Well, when I, when I said that it's how Japan made the modern world, I really wasn't exaggerating. Yeah. Like so many of our, the things we take for granted in modern society were really invented on the streets of Japan in, in, in many ways. And, uh, you know, whether it's the anonymous uh, online discourse that's sort of, you know, sowing such discord in society or or whether it's things like the, our use of emoji or just like obsessively texting and looking down at screens all of the time. You know, that was going on in Japan in the 90s, a full decade before it, it happened here. So there's all sorts of uh, examples uh, of, of that happening. And, you know, it was really, that, that's why it was so key to me to pick products of different, so to speak, genres. Yeah. You can't tell the story with just anime. Like anime and anime fans and, and kind of toxic fandom and all sorts of things are deeply connected into many of the things that we see in, in modern society. But that's just one part of it. Yeah. You know, there, there was this kind of uh, confluence of, of threads coming out of Japan that merged into a flood, you know, in, in the in the late '90s and early 2000s in the West that kind of served to divert the direction of our pop culture, which is to say, our culture at large. Yeah. Well, I I appreciate so much your discussion of this, and I hope that all of our listeners will go out and buy a copy of Pure Invention. It's a really enjoyable read. Um, but also, before we, before we go here, I, I, since we have you here, I wanted to take advantage of finding out what are you working on now? What's, what's your next book? What's your next project? What can we look forward to seeing Well, I, I don't have anything concrete in the works, but right now what I'm really interested in exploring is the concept of Japan's resilience in the face of apocalypse, uh, so to speak. I mean, Japan is a nation that has faced disaster so many times. 
You know, uh, the, the most famous ones, of course, are, you know, World War the Total Destruction or World War II, but there was a, a huge earthquake two decades before that in 1923 that leveled the city. And then before that, there was a giant conflagration that leveled the city. And before that, American gunboats sailed in and literally toppled the entire Japanese regime and, and caused revolution. So, but Japan has kind of sailed through all of these, these, these crises and is, is still a, a cohesive and, and thriving society. And what gives it that resilience? That's something I'm really interested in exploring uh, in, in the next you know, few years as I develop a new uh, book. And hopefully I'll be you know, doing some articles and things ahead of that. Stay tuned. All right. Well, we look forward to reading it. Matt, thank you very much for joining us. Today. Thanks for having me. East Asia Now is produced by the Center for East Asian Studies at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. This podcast is made possible by a Title VI grant to support international education from the U.S. Department of Education. For more information, please visit eastasia.wisc.edu. Our music is a traditional Korean sanjo performed by violinist Sohyun Park Altino.